Why do preachers start with jokes? Well, partly because they're nervous. But what does a joke do? A joke actually engages. It's part of the creation ordinance of getting rapport. That's what it's about. That's why the joke is also usually totally irrelevant from the sermon. Uh, it just gets up here, I crack a joke, you laugh, you laugh at me, I laugh back, and we all, so we, we're now connecting as humans, and then we can get on with the preaching. Uh, because there is the problem when they don't laugh. That's the killer, isn't it? <laughs> That's when you think, okay, we'll come back next week. What is evangelism is what we're doing on now. Evangelism is evangelising. It comes from evangel. I wish people would understand the difference between an evangelical and uh, evangelism and uh, its really problem. Evangelism is the activity of preaching the gospel. An evangelical is one who believes the gospel. Mind you, all evangelicals should evangelise. So I can understand why people do get a little confused with the different words. But what is evangelism that we're going to? Fundamentally, it's proclaiming. The word... Evangel, evangelism has to do with word. It's about message. It's the, the basic word is angel, from which you then have good angel, euangelism. It's, just the, it's the activity of the angel. That is the activity of the messenger. That is, it's proclaiming, declaring, announcing, especially given what we use the word gospel for, that is, a proclamation of great news, a proclamation of great importance that's going to affect the rest of your life, of the way you live. That's, that's what a, a gospel is, and that's what gospeling is, because the word evangelism is to evangel like gospeling is to gospel. We just shift you, and we have gospel, which sounds like one thing, we have evangelism, which sounds like a completely different thing, but in the Greek words, they're closely connected. They're just an extension, one of the other, that we're involved in. It's the, it's the gospeling the gospel. That's the preaching of the proclamation of the declaration of the very message. It's something done with words. And because the message is divine, it's powerful. It's the powerful to save. It's powerful to transform. As we saw yesterday in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And as you can have in a lovely verse I love in 1 Thessalonians 2. I love it because it is so incidental to the argument of 1 Thessalonians and yet so clearly what lies behind Paul's thinking and attitude. It's 2 verse 13. We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God which is at work in you believers. Here I am just speaking my words flowing them out as I have ever since a little boy. My mother used to say I could talk under wet cement and describe my, my verbal aspirations in life as being verbal diarrhoea. I can speak these words, 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 just come flowing out. But if you're preaching the word of God, then the words of men are actually the word of God. And if it's the word of God, then it is the powerful thing. And so it is at work in you believers, changing, converting, saving, transforming people from one degree of glory to the next. So, yesterday at 2 Corinthians, you see, where he writes of them as being letters of Christ, written by the Spirit of God, transformed from one degree of glory to another. He speaks of that word which said, let there be light and there was light, now shining light into their hearts. It's the proclamation that changes the world. And it changes the world 
in its proclaiming. It doesn't, it doesn't change the world by being written in a book and left on a shelf. It gets, changes the world as people speak it to people and people hear what is said. To this end, proclamation requires us to live consistently with the message we preach. The message is the message whether we live consistently or not. Its truth and its power actually stands independently of the preacher. Uh, if you remember Philippians chapter 1, Philippians chapter 1, where Paul is in prison, not knowing whether he's going to be released or not, and other people have started preaching the gospel, and he says in verse 15, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defence of the gospel, but the former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So even when people do it out of the worst of all kinds of motives, the truth is the truth. The gospel will still be be powerful in its word and powerful in its effect. And so, let it be preached. I've got a lovely friend uh, who moved out of Sydney up in Queensland. He was really converted through the Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, he was a Greek. Uh, he was sure that orthodoxy was orthodoxy and that they were the only true Christians because wasn't Jesus a Greek? And uh, I mean, everything is Greek. It all comes back from Greek. If you've seen my big fat Greek wedding, you'll understand. It's all Greek, really. And this Jehovah's Witness comes and opens up the Bibles and shows him things in the Bible which he had no right to do, really, because the Bible was written in Greek and so it's ours. But, of course, my friend had never read the Bible. He was an Orthodox. He didn't have to read the Bible. He got a priest to do that. And now this man is showing him things in the Bible which he had never seen before, had no knowledge of, no understanding. And so he sat down and started reading it for himself and was converted. So through the ministry of the Jehovah's Witness, my friend was converted. Um, he then had difficulty trying to find a church to join because when he went to his Orthodox church he found they didn't believe what he had believed and that's a long story, I won't go into now. So, it doesn't matter who's speaking the truth, the truth is the truth. The Word of God has the power. Out of Balaam's ass came the truth of the Word of God. Great encouragement for you and me, isn't it? But the Gospel Word is a Word that is at work in us transforming us to be more and more like Jesus to be the very object of our message. And so the way we preach, indeed the way we live, should be consistent with the message we're preaching. And in 2 Corinthians 4, that's what Paul is about. He says we don't lose heart such that we would use underhanded methods in our preaching of the gospel. We don't tamper with the word of God. We don't need to because we haven't lost heart. We're not discouraged. Mind you, he had every reason to be discouraged, far more than most of us would ever dream of. But he was never discouraged because of what's involved. So what is the content of the Gospel? Well, what we proclaim, he says, is verses 4 and 5 where I finished yesterday. What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Because the word as is not there in that. What we proclaim is Jesus Christ, Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ, that's who we proclaim. But let's take it phrase by phrase. Not ourselves. It's not about us. We are not the subject of the gospel. We are not the important parts of the gospel. 
It's so contrary to the way the world lives and thinks. People have a career and careers are all about self. That's why Christians can never have careers. Christians can have jobs and need to have jobs. They can have hobbies and it's wonderful if someone will pay you for it. But you can't have a career because a career is all about self-development, self-fulfilment, self-satisfaction, about climbing the ladder for yourself. And that's what we can't have, but that's what is being encouraged everywhere. Universities used to have open days where people could come and find if they wanted to study. Now they have careers days where people can come and find out how to get ahead in life and accidentally, incidentally, occasionally, on rare occasions, against all odds, some people, preferably those who are on the autism Asperger kind of syndrome, learn something. It just occasional, but it's, it's, it's not meant to happen anymore. Not at university. Because it's all about careers. It's about how to get ahead, how to develop, how to grow, how to become important, how to become well paid in particular. And so when we have ministry as a career, guess who it's about? It can't ever be about us. Ministry can never be a career. It's not my ministry. It's not my church. It's not my gospel. I mean, we can talk about it's my church, not your church. We talk about the cathedral, that's my church, whereas we're not talking about easily, that's your church. But it's not mine and it's not yours. It's the Lord Jesus Christ's or it's nobody's. It's, it's, it's not about me. The ministry is never about me. We're going to drive that point home a bit further and a little later in this passage. But it is about Jesus Christ, Lord. Jesus, that particular man of history, that Jewish man, whose name meant Saviour, born of the family of David into the town of Bethlehem, the man who went around preaching the kingdom of God, he was preaching the gospel. The very first reference you have to Jesus is Mark chapter 1, and he is presented as an evangelist. If you ask people, what was Jesus? They'd say a teacher, a healer, a saviour, a lord, a Christ, all kinds of things, but hardly anybody says an evangelist. Because evangelism and evangelist is somehow a dirty word. But the Lord Jesus Christ, the first presentation you have of him in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, he was an evangelist. That's what he did. He went around evangelising. He went around gospeling the kingdom of God and doing good, the kind of good that the Old Testament prophets said would come with the coming of the kingdom of God. And he was teaching his disciples of his imminent arrest and trial and execution as well as his resurrection. And so he was betrayed by wicked men and crucified by the Romans at the behest of the Jews. That's the Jesus he's talking about. That Jesus. That Jesus who's Christ. Christ, of course, is not his surname, but his title. He was the long-awaited Messiah who comes bringing the kingdom of God. Just as the kingdom that Jesus was talking about, so he comes as the Christ, the king of the kingdom who when accused of being the Christ, at first told his disciples about his execution and then accepted the title and was crucified with the name King of the Jews written above his head in different languages. And he was the Lord. Not only was, but is. The ruler, the owner, the master, the king. In the Old Testament, the Jew used the word Lord as a way of uh, avoiding saying the name of God, Yahweh. And so the word Lord has an overtone of divinity in it when you say Jesus, the Christ, the Lord. But there's another overtone which is actually much stronger and more obvious than that. That is, a Lord was one who owned slaves. The Lord was the master of the house. The Lord was the ruler of the slave, the owner, the master of the slave. 
Jesus the slave owner. In fact, he's called despotes, uh, despot in, uh, in Jew and in uh, 2 Peter. Uh, not a word that is commonly, we, 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 we cover that one up very carefully. And of course, just because the Greek word way back then is actually despotes doesn't mean he's a despot in a modern sense of the word. You can't just transliterate words like that. But it captures something of the sense of a lord is a lord. We don't have them now. Well, we do. Well, we don't really. The House of Lords no longer has anything to do with us, does it? But it no longer has anything to do with anything, really, does it? I mean, I'll, you know, I mean, Gilbert and Sullivan sent up the House of Lords in the Lancy 150 years ago as totally useless uh, kind of old codgers sitting in the, and so in their dotage, you know, in a, in a red place. But Lord in the ancient world was not like that. Lord in the New Testament was the master, the ruler, the owner. And we proclaim Jesus, Messiah, Lord. Let's turn with me to Romans chapter 1 and see the gospel there. Romans 1. I'm sorry I rabbited on too long in answering your questions and now I'm speeding up teaching the Bible. The morning scene may be just a fraction late. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, chapter 1, verse 1, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God which he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. There's the gospel, friends. That's the gospel of God. If you're going to understand it, you've got to understand the Old Testament because that's where it was all prophesied and explained to you and set up so that you would understand it when it came. It doesn't come without a context. It comes with a context of all the Old Testament. And what it involves is the coming of the Messiah, the son of David. He was the son of David according to the flesh. And what it involves is the coming of the son of God, Psalm 2. And he is the son of God. How is he a son of God? By his resurrection from the dead and the pouring out of the spirit of holiness into this world, transforming people to accept Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's the gospel that you'll find scattered through the writings of the Apostle Paul that he was sent to preach, the gospel of God. And so this gospel is summarised, this proclamation is summarised back here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, as the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, some people want to preach Jesus the Saviour, but if he's not the Lord, he cannot save us, because he saves us by conquering sin. And some people want to preach Jesus as Lord without saving, but if he doesn't save you from your sin, then his Lordship means your condemnation. What we have is Jesus the Saviour, who is the Messiah, who is the Lord. That's not the totality of the gospel. That's a summary of the gospel. But it's a biblical summary of the gospel. Then he returns, then if he returns to 2 Corinthians 4 or 5, go back there and you see, there's another bit. We don't proclaim ourselves, it's all about Jesus, but we do proclaim ourselves. We proclaim ourselves as your slaves for Jesus' sake. If Jesus is the Lord, then we are his slaves. More than servants, bond servants, slaves. 
this was offensive enough in the first century, let alone in the 21st century. But yet slavery is written into the scriptures in ways that our 18th century fight against the African slave trade has meant that we've sanitised it out of the scriptures, which then gives us terrible problems when we confront the Prime Minister on Q&A about homosexuality and he says, but look what you've done to slavery and we're caught up a creek without a paddle because we've said, oh no, 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 we're against slavery under all circumstances, all terms. When actually, if you're a Christian, you're a slave. You're a slave of your Lord. What kind of Lord doesn't have slaves? We're his slaves. We're a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not against slavery. I'm for it. I've volunteered to become one of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's slightly more than metaphoric at this point. It's the reality. Now, that, of course, is deeply offensive to our individual self-determination. Deeply offensive to our whole Western individualism and way of thinking. But we are, but it's not just that we are, it's the Lord Jesus himself was. Think of Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a... We've got servant in our translations, but it's doulos, not diakonos. Taking the form of a slave. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. We've sanitised the cross by turning it into jewellery. And we've sanitised the service of the Lord Jesus Christ by taking any bondage out of it. So that it's not the bond servant. We've got to see, the cross is not a way to execute people. It's a very clumsy, very poor method of execution. The Romans had much better methods of execution than that. Crucifixion was a way of making a political statement. It was a way of treating the person with ignominy and shame. Strip them naked. That's a dreadful thing to do to someone. And in prison, I, I, uh, I saw something of a, a Nelson Mandela show the other day where they showed Robben Island and the man showing them over Robben Island said he had been a prisoner at Robben Island as well. And the first thing that happened to you when you got on Robben Island, they took all your clothes off you. And then three of the, the prison guards standing before you while you were there naked told you the rules and regulations of what was going to happen in Robben Island. And he said, when you stand naked like that, you can't... You, you, You've got to do what they say. You have no protection. Your clothes are such frail protection. But there's somehow to strip a man naked and hang him up there for everybody to watch him die, knowing that the vultures and the crows are just waiting to be able to peck the eyes out and strip the skin off him. it's, It's not an execution. It's a political statement. It's a power statement. And so we sanitise that wear crosses around our necks as if that was somehow bright silvery things and gold things with jewels and it, it's it's appalling. Sorry everyone's down taking <laughs> Jesus was a slave. He enslaved himself for our salvation. Uh, you remember Mark chapter ten, verse forty five. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. There's the word servant, not slave. And to give his life as a ransom for many. But it's still an explanation of slavery. Remember Jesus taking the towel? 
and washing the feet of the disciples. That was something that even the Jewish slave never had to do. Only foreign slaves had to wash the feet. But Jesus took the towel. But whose slaves are we to be? Paul here says, we are to be your slaves for Jesus' sake. That is, for the sake of the Corinthians, Paul was a slave. For the sake of the Lord Jesus, Paul was the Corinthian slaves. He was now living for their salvation. He was now laying down his life for their salvation. He was now following the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. Flip back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, right at the end of it, verse 31. 10.31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offence to Jews or Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Christ came into the world enslaving himself for the salvation of others. The Apostle Paul followed the example of the Lord Jesus, enslaving himself for the salvation of others. And in so doing, he's setting a model for us that we too must enslave ourselves for the salvation of others. That is what our Lord wants us to do. And when your Lord tells you, the slave, what to do, you do it. And he wants us to enslave ourselves for, to others for their salvation. And so this was all for Jesus' sake, back to 2 Corinthians, that he would be like this. Now you see it in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 12, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 12, where Paul puts it this way, death is at work in us, but life in you. For he's saying, my life is constantly being handed over to death. Shipwreck, imprisonment, stoning, beatings. I mean, Paul's life was constantly being handed over to death, physically and literally, wasn't it? My life is constantly being handed over to death so that you might live. In that, you see, his life exemplifies his message. His message is the crucified Christ, and his life is a life of crucifixion for the salvation of other people. That is, For Jesus' sake, because he is the Lord, he wants us to serve other people. That's why we're their slaves. That's why we lay down our lives for them. It's It's to please and satisfy our Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lived and died for other people's salvation. So it's in obedience to him for whom we live that we give our lives to others. That helps us understand why Paul can say, we do not lose heart. Chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, having this ministry, the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Chapter 4, verse 16, So, we do not lose heart. Chapter 5, verse 6, Chapter 5, verse 6, So, we are always of good courage. Chapter 5, verse 8, Yes, we are of good courage. He's going through dreadful times, worse than any of us, unless I haven't met you yet, worse than any of us have ever gone through in Christian ministry. But he's not discouraged, he's full of good courage. And he doesn't lose heart, doesn't try and find some alternative way of twisting, distorting, making the word of God more acceptable. Look, I'll only mention these things to them because these are the things they want to hear and then when they're sucked in a little bit, I'll tell them some of the nasty things that are actually the the small print of the gospel. Paul doesn't do that. Plain statement of the truth. 
even though it will mean his crucifixion. See, he had a dreadful life. Look at chapter 4, verse 8. Chapter 4, verse 8. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. Because the power of the gospel lies not in the preacher. The power of the gospel lies in the word of God itself. It's in the gospel itself. So we get that famous passage in chapter 4, verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. I don't want you to be unattractive, boring, insignificant, unimportant. I I want you to reach out to people with the gospel and use the personalities that God has given you and the ability to articulate and preach and to be funny and to... But beware. Beware, because in the end they've got to be converted to Christ, not to you. And it, I, I did the survey of a man who planted a church out in the southwestern parts of Sydney some years ago. Lovely man, friendly man, warmest handshake in Christendom. His church had grown very radically in a very, very working class part of Sydney. And it grown, but then it had plateaued. It plateaued for a year, and that's why he called me, and I went out and spent some time with him trying to work out what was wrong, why had it just suddenly stopped growing. And of course, the answer was that everybody had been converted to his warm handshake. And the bigger the church grew, the less time people had of the handshake. The handshakes were getting quicker and quicker all the time because there were so many people. The handshake has a law of diminishing returns built into it, doesn't it? You can only have the five-minute handshake with so many people. He was horrified because he was never pointing to himself. He was always pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. But when you talk to the people about why they came to church, he's such a nice man, he's so friendly, he talks to me very sad because he was totally unaware of what he was doing. Now, he was a good and godly man, repented of it and, and changed things and made sure that those who were converted were converted not to him but to the Lord Jesus Christ and worked his way through the problem. But you see how easily we can stand in the way. I hate it when people tell me I'm a great preacher because I know that I'm not. I thought I was till they said it. But as soon as they say it, I know I'm not. Because if I was a really great preacher, they'd come out and say, isn't Jesus a wonderful saviour? Then I would be a great preacher. As long as they think I'm good, they're not hearing the message at all. They're hearing me. I don't want them to hear me, I want them to hear Jesus. And so my preaching must be so good that they hear Jesus. Not so good that they hear me. There is the trick, isn't it? It's a real trick. The power... And so Paul says, I'm a clay pot. Nobody, plastic bowl, nobody is going to say, isn't there a beautiful plastic bowl? That is not the essence of it. I mean, look at this wonderful glass that I have here. I mean, this little plastic cup, you know, this is worth coming for. And why I've got it out here is because it is so beautiful. Not. It's because it contains the water that I need to keep my throat operating. Learn what's in the cleanness of the pot shows the transcendence of the message. 
And so Paul says, look at our lives. We are but of nothing. He's comparing and contrasting himself, if you know 2 Corinthians, with the super apostles who are telling you how wonderful they are, how marvellous they are, how great and important all the places they've preached at, the television shows they've appeared on, the number of books they've written, the number of PhDs they have, all their kind of, you know, all the big, big, big name preachers. The bigger the name of the preacher, the less likely it is the Lord Jesus Christ will be heard from them. Be very careful, brothers. That's not the way forward. The way forward is the faithfulness to the word of God. But by faithfulness, I don't mean incompetence in teaching it. That's not the same thing as faithfulness. That's actually being unfaithful. See, what he teaches is the gospel, is the resurrection, chapter 4, verse 13. I keep on being rescued from these things, which shows the power of God to rescue, that shows the power of God in resurrection. And so he says, I'm just like the psalmist. Psalm 116, of course, he's quoting. I believed and therefore I spoke. How can I not tell you about being rescued? How can I not tell the story of how I was drowning and yet they pulled me out at the last minute? How can I tell you that I was facing the alligator and suddenly the people came along, the game keeper came along and, and saved me from this story? How could, I mean, these poor people caught in New Guinea by this, this terrible murder business, don't you think they'll be telling that story for the rest of their life? Horrible, terrible story, but you know, that woman rescued me got me back to safety. It's in all the newspapers. A great rescue. How could the Lord Jesus Christ has rescued me? How can I shut up about it? How can I not speak about it? This is what evangelism is. You're rescued and so you speak. And so he exemplified the gospel in the way in which he lived. Giving his life over to death over and over again and Jesus rescuing him from it over and over again. And so... As he spoke to more and more people, more and more people believe and therefore more and more praise goes to God. And one of the kind of strange motivations for evangelism lies in increasing the thanksgiving to the Lord Jesus Christ in chapter 4 verse 15. And so he lived the gospel, renewed daily, growing more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ in chapter 3 and looking to the unseen, to the eternal. Chapter 4 verse 16 to 18, I think this is actually one of the kind of controversies that we're entering into um, in our evangelical community at the moment, that is people are underestimating the eternal and overestimating this world. Look at what he says in verse 16. So we don't lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day, for this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. We look for eternity. We've got to keep our eyes fixed on eternity. The world wants us just to be concerned about the present, to, to fix the problems, to be politically active or to be politically inactive or whatever it is. Uh, it's really important that we're green. It's not really important that we're green. It's really important that we get to heaven. That God will then give us a garden that will be solve all our ecological problems. <laughs> but we're not going to solve our ecological problems in this lifetime any more than we're going to solve the poverty in this lifetime. That doesn't mean we don't care about things green or that we don't care about poverty, but that's not what life is about. Life is about the world to come. And we have to fix our eyes on the unseen 
And so in chapter 5 verses 1 to 10, he talks of longing for the home, the real home. And because we're longing for the home, we're aiming to please him. Chapter 5 verse 9, we make it our aim to please him because one day we're going to appear before his judgment seat and give account for what we've done in this lifetime, for good or for bad. Now, as Archie pointed out last night, chapter 5, verse 10, he's not talking about our eternal salvation. It's talking about the judgment of Christians and the rewards that we will receive and not receive. And the rewards that we receive and not receive are not going to be gold cups to be put or silver cups to be put in the china cabinet or left on the mantelpiece for our mother to dust. The kinds of rewards that we receive will be the effect of the work that we've done the outcomes of the work that we've done. For there Paul sees the Thessalonians and says, you are my joy, you are my crown, you are my hope, you are my pride. You are what I have done. What have you done? In this lifetime, you will appear. It will all appear as to who you really are. All the, the, the cover-up will be taken away. All the wasted hours of television will be seen for what they are. You wasted your life looking at an idiot box. I speak as an addict. It will all be seen for what it is. Why didn't you do more? Why didn't you speak to your neighbours instead of sitting there in front of that stupid box? Why? What have you done with your lifetime? will all be seen for what it is. And so you'll receive your reward for good or for ill, for we will appear before the judgment seat. So what is evangelism? Well, it's the message to proclaim which is the message you live by. It's a message. It's the declaration that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is King, that the Saviour has come, that the judge of all the world has risen for judgment, that salvation is ours, that that message that the Greeks understood, as I read to you yesterday, the, the Greeks understood and wrote up of Augustus Caesar. That's the message. Only it, it's Jesus. And he hasn't conquered by militarism. He's conquered by his death and resurrection. And he hasn't just conquered the Gauls and the Brits. He's conquered sin and Satan and death. That, that's the message. The message that when you hear it changes everything else in life. Nothing is ever the same again. For with the message comes the kingdom of God and righteousness and mercy and forgiveness and rebirth and eternal life. All these kinds of things, they all come with this message. Jesus Christ is Lord. Once you unpack that message, so you'll bring these things to people. But if that's the message, then that's how we live. Jesus is my Lord. And he wants me to live my life sacrificially for other people that they too may be saved. He wants me to lay down my life for them, to give my life to them. He wants me to treat them as I am their slaves to see them saved. That's what he wants me to do. And my aim is to please him. And if that's what he wants me to do, then that is what I must do. For one day, I'm going to appear before him and give account of what I have done in fulfilling his command, in fulfilling his wish that I would live my life not for myself, 
but for him and therefore for others. And so, we must live the gospel message, which means suffering. It means being crucified. That's what it means. In recruiting people into Christian ministry, there is no point talking to them about the superannuation scheme that they'll get themselves involved in. There's no point talking to them about the job security. There's no point talking to them about the, the fact of, of nice people that you deal with. There's no point talking to them about the educational opportunities and the uh, possibilities of the community. There's no point... I could trace all those things out. My children were raised by 65,000 wonderful uncles and aunts who, who just loved them. And, and they had a lovely childhood because they grew up in a rectory home. They really did. Like all rectory children, they learnt musical instruments. Like all rectory children, they got advancement in education. They got more degrees than their parents have got. Like, I can tell you about the fact of Helen and I continuing to be looked after financially all our lives. I can tell you about the comforts and the pleasures of our country. If you go into ministry for any of those reasons, you've gone for the wrong reason. Every time Jesus calls people to follow him, his call is, deny yourself, take it. Take up your cross and follow me. Oh, okay, Jesus, where are you going? I'm going up to Jerusalem to be crucified. Come along. That's where. The invitation is always an invitation to death. Lay down your life for my sake and the gospel, and you'll be saved. Save your life now, and you'll be lost. If we want to please our Lord, and He's our Lord, so therefore we live to please Him not just in this world but in eternity, then we lay down our lives for the salvation of other people. We enslave ourselves to them. And so we proclaim and live that proclamation. So we proclaim not ourselves but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as Jesus Slaves, as their slaves, for Jesus' sake. It's a stark couple of verses, a little verse that one, isn't it? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that out of his grace, he who is rich beyond all splendour should become poor, so that we who are poor might become rich. And we thank you that he not only enriched us by his slavery, saved us by his lordship, but that he calls us into his kingdom to live the way he lived, laying down our lives for other people's salvation, enslaving ourselves to their salvation, So, Heavenly Father, please help us to so rightly understand your way of life in this world, your mission in this world, your way of bringing the gospel to people in this world, that we may joyfully share in the sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we may be willing and and able to live our lives for other people's benefits not concerned for the cost, but rejoicing that we too might be the crucified. 
And we do pray, Father, that you would help us because we find it so hard, Father. We are so given to self-centeredness and our culture teaches us so much to be concerned for ourselves. We find it so hard, Father. So send your spirit amongst us that we may live sacrificially for the salvation of others with joy and thus not lose heart, not tamper with your word, not twist the message, but have confidence in it and that we may not be so engaged with the things of this world that we stop looking for the, the unseen things. Help us, Father, to to set our eyes and our hopes on the things that are above where Christ is seated at your your right hand and, and not on the things of this earth. Give us such confidence in that hidden life in Christ Jesus that we may live our lives now full of courage in the face of disappointments, full of courage in the face of hurt and rejection and hostility, full of courage that when Christ appears, we will appear with him in glory. And so, Father, enable us by your Spirit to keep looking at the Lord Jesus in his eternal glory, that we may continually be transformed into his likeness, into that glory, so that we may stand on that last day with joy, in the rewards that are given to us, the salvation of others and the transformation into his likeness. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.